Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Today we learn about the Rohingya people and the cause behind a humanitarian crisis in Bangladesh which borders Myanmar to the west. The refugees are living in flimsy and overcrowded camps in Cox's Bazaar, Bangladesh. Nearly 700,000 fled Myanmar over the past six months trying to get away from horrific violence. That's a clip from CNN International just last month. The United Nations says that you Rohingya are fleeing Myanmar, a largely Buddhist country, because of ethnic cleansing by the the Myanmar military against the Muslim minority group. Coming up, we'll speak with Maisha Alam, a Yale researcher, about the situation. That's coming up. First, why should we care here in Connecticut about the Rohingya and what's happening to them oceans away? Recently, a small group of Connecticut residents traveled to a refugee camp in Bangladesh where many of the Rohingya are now living. Two South Windsor residents, Dr. Saud Anwar and Rabbi Jeffrey Glickman, join me now in studio. Thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you for having us. Yes. I'll start with you, uh, Saud. I mentioned the Rohingya, and this is a name that uh, people may be hearing in the headlines or may have read in print. But tell us a little bit about uh, the Rohingya people. So the Rohingya people for the past many centuries have been living in Myanmar, and the Myanmar has been their home. And um, these people ethnically look different than the, the Burmese or the, the, the Myanmar uh, people. And, and, and as a result of this, this, these people have been treated differently uh, because of their ethnic differences and religious differences. But uh, Myanmar has been their home for over um, hundreds of years. And, and, and right now, this group has been uh, targeted uh, with uh, a, a different treatment. It has escalated to the point that the uh, United Nations is now considering this as a textbook case of ethnic cleansing of these individuals. And coming up, we're going to speak again with the Yale researcher, Maisha Alam, uh, about uh, the political situation and what has led to this ethnic cleansing uh, in Myanmar. But we wanted to invite uh, both you and Rabbi uh, Glickman uh, to the studio because you've seen firsthand uh, what the refugee camps are like uh, for the Rohingya now living in Bangladesh. Um, this is not the first time, Saud, that you've, that you've visited a refugee camp. Several years ago, you went to Jordan and saw uh, what uh, the Syrians and others have experienced. Uh, yes. Can you compare the two experiences? Yes. So, so uh, again, the last time I went to one of the refugee camps in, in Jordan, uh, which was actually the largest refugee camp in the world at that time, and then now uh, the Kota Pulang uh, refugee camp is the largest uh, refugee camp in the world and probably the most densely populated part of the, the world at this time. And, and there are differences um, the differences are that um, these individuals who have come in in uh, uh, the refugee camp in Kota Palang, they have actually walked 500, 600 miles. Uh, little kids, seven years old, eight years old, who have been actually walking for four, five, six hundred miles to get to a safe place. And and they have been shot at while they were trying to get to the place, and, and they have been in very difficult situation, and healthcare challenges are very significant. Not to take away anything from the, the refugees in, in from Syria, but uh, the humanitarian disasters are escalating um, across the world. And this one is probably one of the worst ones right now. 
Uh, Dr. Anwar, you've been on Where We Live uh, before. Uh, Rabbi Glickman, I should mention that both of you are uh, uh, in the town of uh, South Windsor on the town council. Dr. Anwar is a mayor, Rabbi Glickman as a a town council member. Um, So, Rabbi Glickman, how did you uh, get interested in even going over to Bangladesh? Tell us how this trip started. Uh, Well, Lucy, anyone who follows the, well, who listens to NPR or reads the, the newspaper um, would see that this is one of the most dramatic places in the world in terms of, of what's going on with refugees. I like to say it's like an active volcano going on right now. Um, first of all, I want to uh, say how deeply appreciative I am to NPR for all of your coverage. Um, you have a, a heritage of shining light in places where people don't necessarily want to look, and it's really important. And I come from a heritage of prophets in the Bible who did the same thing. Uh, and I support your efforts very much. Um, if you looked at the news, you would know that this was a real hotbed. Um, and I wouldn't have gone there but for the fact that uh, one of um, my inspirations Dr. Saud Anwar, who I think is a real American hero, uh, along with his wife, uh, Yusra. Um, he said, Jeff, these are Muslims. I'm a Muslim. People aren't paying any attention to them. There's genocide. There's ethnic cleansing. Maybe people will listen to a Jewish voice. And it's important for a rabbi to be there. And um, when my wife heard about this, she said, oh, I want to go too. And so uh, Saud and I went with our spouses. But it was really his inspiration. I followed him to Haiti, and we founded a school there together uh, a few years back. So you flew into Bangladesh. Tell us how you get to this particular refugee camp, uh, Saud. So um, it, it's, it's uh, very difficult to get to that point. So it, it uh, takes about almost 19 hours of flying time just to get from from United States to to Bangladesh. And then that's in Dhaka where we get to the airport. From Dhaka, you actually take another flight to Cox Bazar Airport. And then then the Cox Bazar, it's about another hour and a half flight or so. From there, to get to the refugee camp, you have about an hour and a half to two hour drive. And and then subsequently, when you get to that uh, two hour drive, then you have to walk about 45 minutes to an hour to get actually to the campsite. Uh, to the site where we were working at. So it's it's uh, walking, driving, flying, changing flights. Uh, it's almost uh, more than 24-plus uh, hours to get to uh, to see the first Rohingya refugee. And uh, Rabbi Glickman, when you get there, describe what you see. We have some pictures on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live, uh, that you have shared with us. But what was your first impression when you well, came the, upon the camp? The first impression of Bangladesh is there's a lot of pollution in the air and all over the place, and there are so many people. Um, and there are mosquitoes, and I didn't know for sure if they had malaria or not, and all over, indoors, outdoors. Um, but ironically... The refugee camps, which are densely packed, um, are almost like an oasis. The, the, the people have almost nothing. It's exceedingly desolate of vegetation. The, the bamboo shelters are, are right up on each other, and there's lots and lots of people, mostly kids. It's two-thirds children. Um, but there's no litter. 
there that they don't have anything to throw away. There's no loud sounds. They, there's no electricity. And right now, the people aren't being shot at, and they are so happy to be there. It, it, and, and it goes on and on and on. As far as you can see everywhere, there's so many people. Uh, but it was really startling for me to see that. Uh, you're both Americans there with your wives. How did you gain access to this refugee camp? Who did you partner with on the ground on this humanitarian mission? So so there's a group called OBAT Helpers, O-B-A-T helpers.org. And then this group is uh, um, uh, set up in the United States. And and, and uh, one of the, the individuals is a friend um, who his name is Anwar Khan. He is the one who started this many years ago. So he's actually registered in Bangladesh and over here. And as a result, they had access and they have a pretty strong uh, um, footprint in, in the, the refugee camps. As a result of that, we were able to tag along with them. And then they have uh, clinics. They have shelters. They also have uh, a small schools that they called uh, temporary learning centers. And so they have a number of different projects that they've been working on. So we actually worked and collaborated with them, and they were our support in, on ground to be able to help us get to uh, the, the refugee camps. This is where we live. Uh, you're hearing Dr. Saud Anwar, mayor of South Windsor, Connecticut, here in studio uh, with Rabbi Jeffrey Glickman, uh, rabbi at Temple Beth Hillel in South Windsor, also a town council member. Uh, both of you are friends, and both of you traveled with your wives recently uh, to a refugee camp in Bangladesh. Today, we're learning about the people, nearly 700,000 Rohingya Muslims that have fled uh, the country of Myanmar because of a military crackdown, a very violent crackdown. Um, that what's happening to the Rohingya people, the UN has called it ethnic cleansing. We're going to learn more about, again, the political climate, what led to this crisis coming up. But we wanted to speak uh, with Connecticut residents who've returned, who've given some of their time to a story that is so far away from us here in Connecticut. When you were helping uh, these children, the elderly, you have pictures. Uh, how old was that man that you were helping, uh, Dr. Inla? So the, this individual we actually met uh, was 110 years old. He's an elderly man uh, who actually was carried by his son um, and other family members for 12 days or 14 days or so to, to bring them to safety. And it was just uh, amazing to see the, the level of care and respect for the, the elderly that we, we saw there. It was um, uh, also his health was not the best, but uh, he had a smile on his face when we finally were able to have a conversation with him and then showed him our respect and the fact that we were there to help out. Um, so we and then there are hundreds of similar stories that we of the individuals that we met. Mm. Uh, you, when you were there, you taped a conversation with one of the Bangladeshi doctors that you worked with. I should mention again, Dr. S Dr. Anwar, a lung specialist. Uh, here he is talking about some of the patients that he's seen. And we're going to hear a little bit of that clip, and then you translating. Two three so there was an 11-year-old child who actually came to the clinic the other day, and this child actually could not walk. And then the reason he could not walk was that he was actually uh, kicked by the Myanmar army personnel, and they had kicked him to the point that he actually had uh, dislocated his hip. And with a dislocated hip, he actually had to walk some 500 miles or so, and people had to help him. And then by the time he came here, uh, he was in a situation and a position that uh, the doctors felt that they could not do much with his body and his uh, situation at that time. So they're still trying to work a way to, to give him some kind of a treatment. He's barely able to walk now at this time.
this is a type of injury that if a child received this in this country, uh, if they're given treatment quickly, it would be he'd be able to walk again. Yes. What are the What are the outcomes for this child? This is a very difficult case, actually. Um, I, I subsequently had a chance to meet the mother and, and talk to her because uh, this child was so far away that he could not get to the clinic himself. So I spoke with the mother and, and, and tried to understand if, if uh, uh, he was getting any better or not, and, and she felt that he was essentially now bedbound and could not walk much at all because he could not put any weight on his leg. Now, in a, in a timely fashion, if he did not have to walk and, and, and be in the situation to walk 500 miles with a dislocated hip, um, he would be in a better situation to have that healing. His young age was not helping the situation. And having a, an orthopedic surgeon to be able to address that would definitely help. And an unfortunately, lack of appropriate health care is, is going to cause a permanent damage in this child. And you mentioned he walked hundreds of, of miles, a lot of them, to get to this camp. Yes, and, and that was the thing. You have see seven-year-old and, and, and eight-year-old kids who are the younger ones and then, then elderly who had walked for hundreds of miles uh, for weeks to be able to get to a safety. That was actually the, the part which was um, uh, amazing. And, and, and when the kids, because of the resilience of the kids, you saw smiles on the faces of these kids, it just lit up the entire environment because um, every child has a story. It's a heart-wrenching story, gut-wrenching stories that we hear but then you see these smiles and see the resilience and you give get hope from them and you want to do more to be able to help them. Mm. Uh, when we're talking about physical injuries, but there's also the trauma that people experience uh, um, that caused them to flee, the distance traveled, uh, what it's like to live uh, in this type of situation. Uh, the rabbi, you mentioned it was very crowded. Can you give us an example? So if we're looking at, um, say, an acre of land here here in Connecticut, what does it look like? How packed in are they? All right, so if you live in a house that has like a front yard and a backyard, you're in between a half an acre and three quarters of an acre, something like that. Imagine 150 people living on your land. Imagine 150 people living on it. And it's not like across the street is a park or, or even a road, there's 150 people on the border and uh, on, on, on the border of the property all around you. The, the rooms are very small and um, dirt floors, and some have some mats to cover the dirt, and there's six or seven people living in, um, living there. I mean, y you couldn't have seven people doing sit-ups on the floor. It's so tight. Just lying next to each other is about uh, how much room there is. Uh, they don't have additional clothes. There's no chairs. They're just there, and um, ironically, they're so appreciative to be there. This is where we live. Uh, today we're speaking with two South Windsor residents, uh, South Windsor Mayor Dr. Saud Anwar and Rabbi Jeffrey Glickman of uh, Temple Beth Hillel in South Windsor, also a town council member. Uh, they returned recently uh, as well as their wives from a humanitarian trip to Bangladesh uh, to help the Rohingya people who have fled there because of a military crackdown in Myanmar. Coming up after the break, we're going to learn more about uh, the stories they heard while they were there and what they think the U.S. and the international community should be doing to help these people, more than 700,000 that have fled since last summer. More after the break.
This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Headlines often focus on the refugee crisis from Syria, but there are other groups worldwide that face persecution for a number of reasons, reasons that force them to flee their homes. Today, we're learning about the Rohingya Muslims, a minority group in Myanmar. It's a Southeast Asian country that's largely Buddhist. My two guests here just returned from Myanmar's neighboring country, Bangladesh, where refugee camps are sheltering the Rohingya who have fled violence perpetrated by the Myanmar military. Now, Myanmar denies this, telling the international community they're under attack by Rohingya insurgents. Coming up, we're going to learn more about the political climate in Myanmar that led to this crisis, but more from our guests who here, live here in South Windsor, Connecticut. Again, Dr. Saud Anwar, mayor of South Windsor, also Rabbi Jeffrey Glickman, rabbi at Temple Beth Hillel in South Windsor, also a town council member. Uh, rabbi Glickman, you were talking about um, you know the, some of the people that you've met, including the children. Tell us some of the stories that that, um, that you were able to convey. Again, you're an American. Um, I'm just curious about how you were able to communicate with them. Well, it's very um, easy to relate to these people. Uh, there's two-thirds children, and actually the story of of their exodus and crossing a, a river at the end matches our story of Passover, and the story of ethnic cleansing matches, it, it resonates with our story of the Holocaust. Um, they're different stories, it, it, I'm not going to say it is a holocaust, and I'm not going to call everyone I dislike a Nazi. Uh, but I am going to say because we listen, because we as Jews hear these stories over and over again, it shapes the way we look at the world. So we cannot stand and do nothing while any of our neighbors are bleeding. Um, I wanted to give them a story, and I, um, I brought 2,000 loops of string uh, that you can play like Cat's Cradle with. There's a a string trick you can do where you tie up your four fingers and then you pull the bottom string and they magically come untied. Uh, and with the translator, I told them a story about a people with a good mind, a good heart, and a and strong courage. And I pointed to my head and my heart and I made a fist with my, with, with my arm. And I said they lived in Myanmar for hundreds of years and they were happy until the military said, we don't want you to be um, citizens. And I, I tied up my index finger. And we, they don't want you to have good uh, land or good jobs. And I tied up the next finger and not to go to school. And I tied up the last. And then, um, and then they started to come and to kill the people and to burn the villages. And it looked like the whole hand was tied up. And I said, but these people have a good mind, a good heart, and are courageous. And they decided not to fight. And they decided that they could walk away. And they decided that they could build a new home somewhere else. And with each one of those, I'm slowly pulling the string and the knots are coming out. And they work very hard to take care of the elderly and to take care of the babies. And they're going to go to school and work hard to learn to be smart. And they will be free. And so the kids heard the story. We then passed out the string. And I told them if they can tell me the story in the Rohingya language, that I would give them three more strings to give to their friends. And so these little kids, and we have videos of it, they're pointing, they, they, they take the thing, they learned it so fast you wouldn't believe. They point to their hand, their heart, their, their, they make a fist with their hand, the hand, heart, and the fist, the da 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 zing, and the, the string is off their hand, and they are now the heroes of their story. Um, and we passed out 2,000 strings, and the, on the second day in a very different part of the camp, a little kid had a string and was telling this story. And they can get string. Um, anyways, that, that, that was, we, we did a lot of interviews. We helped out in the, the, the clinic 
but but we moved to the uh, around the camp while the doctors were in the clinic all the time. Sagu, I started this part of the show mentioning the refugee crisis in Syria now going on uh, for many years. Uh, do you feel like the, what's happening to the Rohingya people are being forgotten? I think the level of attention that uh, we as a country and as Americans are paying attention to all of these humanitarian uh, disasters that are brewing across the world, there are people in Yemen, there are people in Syria, and then, and, and of course, the Rohingya, it is important for us as, as a country which has been at the forefront of the humanitarianism and the moral compass, which is unparalleled to any other country and any other people, we have a responsibility to raise the awareness and continue to try to do the right thing, to, to expect more from our government, to expect more from the moral authority and the financial authority of our government to be able to help the people who are who are hurting at this time across the world. Before I go back to the rabbi, you know, there some Americans will be listening and say we can't fix everything. So what would you say to them when we look at yet another crisis and what you expect the US and others countries to do? So so I think um I, I understand that we are going through our own challenges, but I think the easier thing and important thing to do is to raise the awareness and then have the awareness and know what's going on in the world because if we, it it becomes relevant when children are dying and, and and people are hurting and then there's ethnic cleansing that's going on. We have said as a society as a world that never again and we should when we say that we should actually mean it and we should stand by it. Uh, the other thing that I believe it's important for us to to focus on is to expect more from our elected officials at the federal level and 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 expect them to actually raise the voice and 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 have a capacity to put a stop to to the Myanmar army and the government, the elected officials to to stop this ethnic cleansing that's been going on. I think that's important. And, and in the International Court of Justice, where we actually have an important voice, we need to have the people who are culprits of this ethnic genocide uh, to be able to stand up uh, and, and, and have them be answerable to that. Mm-hmm. And then that's the, the part. And then, then financial help, whoever feels that they want to be able to help children, they want to be able to help individuals who are going through such challenges, they should be able to make a contribution to organizations that are reliable and, and have been doing groundwork. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rabbi Glickman, again, uh, you were there with your wife as well as Dr. Anwar's wife uh, and Saud uh, to help, but you were there for just a few days and then you had to leave. Um, mm-hmm. You're sharing the story now uh, with uh, your congregations, uh, your faith uh, uh, membership, but uh, what is your message to people listening? So my message is uh, you don't need to travel to Bangladesh and um, Lucy, what you're doing here today, uh, amplifying this message and getting the word out, it's as though you were there walking with us. Um, we close our eyes to the needs of the world. Uh, and when we do so, we forget who we are. We are the people that has a statue of a great big green woman in the middle of uh, New York's harbor that says, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Um, That's who we are as America, and we have forgotten that. And we have become dreadfully selfish, and we have put blinders on our eyes and hands over our ears. uh, And we selfishly say that we are better than these people that don't have shoes. We're not. And when we open up our eyes and open up our hearts 
we are helping. Uh, we're helping our neighbors. So what I encourage people to do, certainly if they can help out with the Rohingya crisis, wonderful, but we need to be more open to people that look a little different than we do and people who are really hurting. Uh, Saud, uh, we only have a couple more minutes before we head to break, uh, uh, but uh, we were talking about uh, what uh, the Rohingya have experienced, uh, walking hundreds of miles, living in crowded conditions, dealing with injuries, uh, um, trauma. Um, coming up in a few months, the monsoon season begins. I think that's the big disaster that we are really worried about is because um, uh, there are uh, challenges because of the deforestation that's happened and because of the structure that has been set up there. Uh, the monsoon reason, along with the cyclones that people actually have experienced in that region, there is going to be a bigger disaster that's looming. In an end. Uh, according to some estimates, uh, about one-third of the population in the um, the Rohingya camps would actually be deeply and significantly impacted, and the number of deaths and, and illnesses will increase significantly. So this will be a disaster on top of another disaster that's that's expected. And I think um, we need to be aware of this, and we need to make sure that we have a mechanism to support the people on ground trying to help them. And there are 65 million refugees in the world right now, more than ever before. And Bangladesh is a reluctant host. Uh, in the, the people are flowing to the poorest countries. Uh, it, when we were in Bangladesh and walking on the streets, there were loudspeakers blaring, the Rohingyas are not part of us. We don't want them. Don't hire them. Uh, several times we heard that in ugly, ugly voices. We, as Americans, are better people than that, and we need to remember who we are. We mentioned that the Rohingya are refugees right now in, in Bangladesh, and there's a political climate that between uh, Myanmar and Bangladesh about when these people will be able to go back to where they live. Uh, meanwhile, have, do we know, uh, Dr. Anwar, if there's been any movement in this so, country to get them refugee status? So I think, um, and this was one of the other issues that we are truly worried about, is if the people, the Rohingya people, are sent back to Myanmar without a safety net, without a very uh, strong presence of United Nations, it is ex actually essentially condemning one million people to death. And then we really cannot do that as a world, as humans. And I think right now we need to support the government of Bangladesh. We also need to support the Rohingya people to be able to help take care of them there, but also create a United Nations involvement in that entire region so that there is a mechanism for a safe return of those individuals and the people. And, and there needs to be a punishment for the ones who have been part of ethnic cleansing and genocide who have been involved. And without that and sending the people without that safety net is, is condemning them to death, and we need to stand against that. Dr. Saud Anwar, South Windsor's mayor, also Rabbi Jeffrey Glickman of Temple Beth Hillel in South Windsor, both of them just returning uh, recently from a refugee camp in Bangladesh. We have pictures from their trip at our, on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, we're going to continue this conversation in a few minutes, learn more about the political climate. But if these kinds of conversations are important to you, please support WMPR with a pledge. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you more. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Friday, whether you're young or older, does planning for retirement have you swimming in the sea of dollar signs and question marks? 
On the next Where We Live, we'll look at best practices to keep your head above water and make the most of your financial future. We'll take your calls, tweets, and emails. That's coming up tomorrow on Where We Live. Now, today we've been talking about the crisis affecting the Rohingya people. Hundreds of thousands have fled to Bangladesh after being targeted in a violent crackdown by the Myanmar military there. The conflict didn't appear suddenly. For more perspective on the political situation in both Myanmar and Bangladesh, we're joined on the phone by Maisha Alam. She's a Ph.D. candidate in political science at Yale University and recently returned from research fieldwork in Rohingya refugee camps in Bangladesh. She's also the author of the book Women and Transitional Justice. You can join the conversation as well, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Maisha, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Lucy. I'm delighted to be joining you. I understand that you and your family are from Bangladesh, and you're just back recently from doing research there in the same uh, refugee camp that our previous guests uh, were visiting on their humanitarian mission. Um, what led you there? Was it just this crisis? And I'm just curious um, your take on the things that you saw on the ground there. Sure. Uh, you know, I focus and specialize on mass political violence and trying to understand civilian targeting during armed conflict. And I have been working on these types of issues for more than a decade, um, both professionally and, and through my own research. But this case and, and the developments uh, in, in, with respect to the Rohingya since last year hit close to home, as you mentioned. And I wanted to understand what was going on? Why were these people being forcibly expelled en masse from where they lived? And how are they faring in their new conditions as refugees in Bangladesh? So I traveled to try to understand exactly those issues. Um, but as you know, this, this population has been facing discrimination and marginalization and violence, state-led violence for generations. So this is not new, uh, but the the clearance operations, as the Myanmar military calls them, that began in August of last year are unprecedented in their scale, their nature, and their scope, producing one of the largest humanitarian catastrophes in our world. Let's talk about, about that political context, uh, starting, I guess, in the early 80s, uh, the fact that the, the Myanmar uh, natives, they don't really believe the Rohingya belong there. Can you talk about why? That's right. So in 1982, when Myanmar was uh, still under direct military rule, a citizenship law was passed that essentially disqualified the Rohingya from being able to qualify or be recognized as, as citizens. And that, as you can imagine, has enormous consequences on their on their quality of life, their ability to participate in politics, to live with dignity. And conditions, frankly, have degraded over the last uh, couple of decades. But the sort of, uh, you know, I think the thrust of what's happening right now is this notion that the Rohingya are foreign invaders, they're illegal migrants from Bangladesh, that they have no claims or ties to the land on which they live. In fact, however, this population, they are distinct culturally, linguistically from Bangladeshis who are, you know, across the border. Um, and they're a minority population in Myanmar. So they are a minority by virtue of the fact that they're a Muslim population in a Buddhist majority country. They have their own customs, their culture, and their own language. The perception is, however, that they don't belong, that they don't fit the nation, both as an idea and a place. 
And that has been something that's led to their dehumanization, both in the public imagination, as well as through the institutionalization of policies like the citizenship law that I mentioned. Uh, the Myanmar government would say that they're just responding to uh, insurgents uh, by the Rohingya violence that they're perpetrating. In um, the other flip side, the Myanmar are victims of extreme Buddhist nationalism. Can you talk a, a little bit more about that? That that term might be unfamiliar uh, to our listeners uh, when we think about uh, Buddhists. Yeah, so if we're trying to understand what led to these, as the government calls it, clearance operations, the proximate cause or the trigger, if you will, is that on August 25th, 2017, um, just over six months ago, a small insurgent group carried out some attacks on local security posts in the border region in northern Rakhine State, which is in western Myanmar, um, near the Bangladesh border. This small insurgent group claims to represent the Rohingya population. They claim to be fighting for self-determination and for the rights of the Rohingya people. It's unclear, however, how much support they actually enjoy amongst the the civilian population, first of all. And second of all, the attacks, the, the, the attacks on local security posts they were sort of ambush-style attacks, and there's no doubt that, that they did cause small-scale destruction and, and the deaths of a few people. But the response has been entirely disproportionate in terms of the way in which the military has responded. And I think the thing that's most startling, and as I'm sure you know, many of our viewers have seen, uh, sorry, listeners have seen in the news, um, the UN has gone on to call this a textbook case of ethnic cleansing, as has the U.S. government, because of the way in which that the people of of this region have been targeted. Um, so that's the sort of trigger that has produced this violence. But the the, bit of, the bigger um, uh, you know issue, if you will, which you alluded to uh, earlier, has a lot to do with deep-set ethno-religious nationalism. Um, there are extremely powerful uh, uh, Buddhist extremist monks that belong to a movement called the 969 movement that over the course of the last several years, especially since Myanmar began opening up and there were restrictions on, on, on freedom of assembly and freedom of speech that began to be lifted, have capitalized on the access to information, the introduction of social media into this country um, to really peddle narratives about the Rohingya population, uh, painting them as a demographic threat, uh, and, and in many ways spreading disinformation about them as, as a threat uh, to the broader Buddhist majority population, despite the fact that the Rohingya are geographically concentrated to this region, um, and in fact they live virtually under apartheid-like conditions where they don't enjoy freedom of movement, they can't hold public office, they can't vote in elections, they can't access basic services, and they don't really pose the type of threat that the, the Buddhist extremist movements, the social movements, claim that they do. This is where we live. On the phone with us, Mayesha Alam, a PhD candidate in political science at Yale University, who recently returned from research field work in a Rohingya refugee camps in, in Bangladesh. Uh, we're talking in, with her to learn more about the situation that's led to this huge humanitarian crisis in Bangladesh, uh, learning about uh, what's happening to the Rohingya people, a Muslim minority uh, that have fled Myanmar, a Southeast Asian country. Uh, we mentioned the term ethnic cleansing. Can we talk a little bit more about what that means? And now that the UN and others are 
saying that this is ethnic cleansing. What are they going to do about it? Yeah, ethnic cleansing is differentiated from other types of mass political violence by two factors, and primarily one is that the target population represents a distinct ethnic group, and as we talked about earlier, the Rohingya are exactly that. But the second part is that the cleansing part essentially alludes to trying to either eliminate in whole or in part the population. And in this case, what that looks like is you've had about uh, 700,000 people pushed out of Myanmar over the course of six months, which is extremely fast um, and with extreme brutality. It's difficult to know exactly how many people have died. There are estimates that at least 7,000 people have died, according to Doctors Without Borders, but it's virtually impossible to verify that right now because the international community, including aid organizations, lack access to northern Rakhine State. So any estimates in terms of numbers of those killed are from those who have made it to Bangladesh, from witnesses and survivors. Um, and in addition to massacres, uh, we know that sexual violence has been prevalent uh, since, since the clearance operations began, that people have had their property confiscated, that there have been forced disappearances. Um, and what's extremely startling, too, is that more than 350 Rohingya villages have been burned to the ground. Uh, so there are... Uh, there's ample evidence, both satellite imagery and otherwise, uh, that there, there, there's been scorched earth tactics that have been used to clear this area of this population and to push them across international borders into Bangladesh. Mm. I had um, asked the question of, of what happens in terms of how the international community respond uh, responds. I mean, what is your take, Maisha? Again, you were on the ground talking to the Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh. Yeah, in terms of looking forward, we have to think about the humanitarian situation as well as the political situation. So let me start with the political situation. Myanmar is not a democracy. Even though it has been transitioning from direct military rule, um, it's more complicated than that. And the transition has been bumpy, and it has produced a variety of uh, complicating factors. And, and one of those is the fact that the military remains extremely powerful. It's the most powerful political institution. Um, and the, the way that the most recent constitution is written, the military has virtually carte blanche when it comes to issues of national security, border security, and, and, um, and defense matters. Now, looking forward, what can the international community do? If you remember, just even a few years ago, Myanmar was under um, heavy sanctions and, uh, and isolated from the rest of the world. And as it's begun transitioning towards democracy, those have been lifted. Now, one of the ways in which the international community can and should respond is to reimpose uh, punitive sanctions targeted towards those who are in the political leadership in order to show that, you know, this type of human rights abuses, this type of treatment towards people who live within their own borders is unacceptable, that these are crimes against humanity that are being, that are being committed, and that, you know, the international community will not watch and, and, and do nothing. Um, Looking at the humanitarian situation, I mean, that's the thing that people talk about, right, is where is the world? Why does no one care about us? Um, 
in, in terms of the Rohingya and what they want, uh, they want guarantees of non-repetition. They want to be recognized as Rohingya people uh, and not be denied their cultural and ethnic identity. And they want to be able to, to be recognized as citizens of Myanmar uh, so that they, can't, they have rights and privileges um, and responsibilities that go with citizenship. Uh, and until that happens, it's very difficult to imagine this population being able to safely return to where they came from. We just have a couple of minutes left, Maisha. We should mention uh, another piece of the story that, that is complicated um, when we uh, see the Nobel Peace Laureate uh, human rights figure, Aung San Suu Kyi, now the de facto leader in Myanmar. Uh, she has not uh, she's been criticized, rather, for not condemning what's happening to the Rohingya people. I understand she does not have control over what the military does. But, you know, how should people look at this part of the story? It's very discouraging, and she has been criticized heavily. She's had several awards that she's been given, including from, for example, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum and others that have been revoked. Um, but the fact of the matter is that she has for the most part, been largely silent on what's happening to the Rohingya. And in the couple of instances that she has spoken out, she has not uh, in any way offered sympathy or solidarity towards the Rohingya. Rather, she's sort of confirmed, if you will, or conformed to what the military uh, justification and narrative is. So it's extremely discouraging. It's it's extremely troubling. Um, And as you mentioned, the Constitution is such that she doesn't have any power over the military. So that perhaps explains why we haven't seen her, you know, do something different in terms of domestic politics and, and, and the balance of power in Myanmar. She is our equivalent of sort of the, the Secretary of State or the head of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. That doesn't explain, however, why a woman who has spent the better part of her life being a champion for democracy and human rights is essentially you know, turning her back on a population that lives within her country's borders in such a, um, in such a, in, in such a uh, direct way um, and is essentially, uh, you know, condoning what the military has been doing. Maisha Alam is a Ph.D. candidate in political science at Yale University. She recently returned from uh, interviewing uh, refugees there in Rohingya, the Rohingya refugee camps. Uh, again, uh, nearly 700,000 that have fled uh, since a violent military crackdown began in late summer. Uh, we ran out of time, Maisha. We didn't get a chance to even talk about the strain this is putting on Bangladesh as a country and uh, what will be um, happening in the future. But we do thank you, Maisha, for talking with us uh, today to give us some context to this headline. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lucy. This is Where We Live, today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. If you enjoy hearing about topics that we tackle here, the very many different conversations we have here, please support WNPR. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you how.